Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland, episode 19, Ale and Oat Cakes. Hello, hello, welcome hello. back. Hello. Hello. Kate, how are you? I'm, I'm good. How, how are you, Thomas? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, welcome back, everyone, to the Gladstone's Land podcast. Here we are again. We used to say recording in the Gladstone's Land cellar, but we're, of course, not doing that. <laughs> Yeah, sadly, for, for many reasons. And um, um, and we're back with with another episode. I hope um, uh, I hope that some people were able to listen to our previous episode about the Georgian House. If you haven't already listened to that one, uh, maybe when you finish this one, go back and, and listen to that. <laughs> uh, just because, apart from anything else, it explains some of the context, doesn't it, of what's going on mm-hmm. here? How we're we're recording a new series or mini-series of these episodes and it tells you what Kate and some of our other, uh, some of the friends of the podcast have been doing in the last few months since uh, uh, since you last heard from us. So if you haven't listened to it Absolutely. already, uh, listeners, do go and listen to that on The Georgian House. But today we're not talking about The Georgian House, we're talking about something much dearer to uh, both of our hearts. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, which is food, or, or food and drink. Food and drink, let's, let's be quite clear there. Uh, and I, well, Kate, you are a, um, a, a food historian, is that? Uh, I, I mean, I think that would be perhaps a little bit of a stretch. I have, I, I am a historian that has a side interest in food. Um, so I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, um, but I enjoy making historic recipes and I have a blog where I try them out and um, let you know if they're worth making in the modern day um, and also talk about some of the history around them and, and how some of the ideas associated with them developed. Most of the recipes that you've made I mean, they look very nice in the pictures, but um, sometimes the stories you've told of them are, are less than uh, uh, less than exemplary. Uh, are they? Uh, uh, have, are there any particular ones that you think would be uh, worth making in the modern day? Well, if we're talking about 17th and 18th century recipes, which we are today, um, the, actually the last one that I put on my blog, um, absolutely. I mean, it's essentially grilled cheese with anchovies, but Ooh. it was delicious you you get your bread you fry it in some butter um you uh put an anchovy on it well half an anchovy cheese on top and then you grill it um and it is posh cheese salty cheese on toast it's buttery as well mm. butter makes everything better um, and that that's a an 18th century recipe and it's it's absolutely delicious um, but i have made some things that are a lot more um perhaps perhaps a little bit different to modern palettes Yes, I was just thinking there that when I played back in my head what I just said, it sounded like I was saying you were a terrible cook, and that obviously wasn't what I was trying to imply. <laughs> um, but you th- you say that people ate things that were quite different from the sort of things that we might think about eating today. Absolutely. Um, and we'll obviously, we, we have an interview coming up um, later in the episode uh, where we'll be talking a lot more about this. But uh, we have a lot more access to, to international cuisine just in a way that wasn't as accessible in the um, 17th and 18th century. And obviously we can store food as well. Um, we have fridges, we have freezers. Um, so there are a lot of things open to us that, that weren't available. 
um, and a lot of innovations that have happened through the 19th and 20th century. Um, we talk about gelatin uh, in the interview that's coming up and um, and, that, and that's been a big change. Uh, in the 17th and 18th century, it was made with, with meat and so would have tasted meaty. Why do you think food is important? Or more specifically, why do you think from a social history point of view, food is is important or, or worth thinking about? Oh, gosh. So I... I mean, at its very base level, it's it's absolutely essential for everybody, and everybody needs food and drink. Uh, so it's it's an absolute common denominator across history that you know that people are eating food, and therefore it is a really interesting reflection of what they're able to grow, what they're able to access, what they're able to import. And it's also a really good social barometer. So the working classes are eating to survive, the upper classes are eating um, to their means. So it's a way of um, what they are eating reflects fashion as much as sustenance. Hmm. And I suppose it's always something that has a lot of a lot of cultural resonance, doesn't it? That people eat things that really mean a lot to them or define them as a member of a particular culture or uh, they situate them in a place or time or, or what have you. Absolutely. Um, so it is, you can read recipes and see from those recipes what sort of period it is by what they're focusing on, what they're... Uh, so you get fashions at various points for very decorative recipes, sugar craft, or, um, and again, it is a way of, of flaunting wealth um, because sugar is expensive, but also presenting it in this incredibly decorative way, which is, again, uh, it ties into sort of wider concepts of, of fashion at the period. Uh, so you can actually see food intersecting with clothing and interior design and, and presentation. Uh, and it's a way of showing off, isn't it? Uh, big dinner parties, big banquets, uh, serving many courses, uh, serving decadent things, expensive things. It, it's, uh, there's a real sense of keeping up with the, the neighbours. And I suppose it's one of those really nice examples of being able to reach through time and have and, and see something that you really have in common with people in the past. You know, there are some things it's... you read about uh, historical figures doing that you we can't really associate with very well today, but food and drink and going to the pub or having a really tasty meal or sharing food or a, a, a jolly evening with your friends. There's exactly the sort of thing that we still do today. And that's, all, that's one of the, I think, I always think one of the most special things about studying history is finding those windows through to the past. Where you can sort of link up and you can see the parallels. But what's so interesting, I suppose, about recreating the recipes, it gives you a sensory experience that you don't really get with history very often. So although we know that the past smelt different or we know that um that different perfumes were fashionable or it's much harder unless you have unless you're recreating say a specific perfume or a specific to to recreate the smells whereas actually recreating the tastes providing you can lay your hands on the ingredients is relatively simple and you can do in your own kitchen um whereas obviously you we we've talked about smells in the last season and and that really requires an expert to do it so for me recreating historic recipes is a way to actually access that sensory experience of the past Mm. that's really fascinating i hadn't thought about that bit no i like that 
And we have a food element to the Gladstones land experience as well, don't we? Because one of the rooms that you walk through on the uh, the the tour of the merchant flat is the kitchen, and that's um, apart from anything else, that's one of the rooms that I think uh, uh, members of the public enjoy most because they can see the various kitchen implements uh, and think about what they were used for. Um, but they also the the tour guides will talk about the different things that people ate and drank, uh, and uh, and that's always one of the more interactive parts of the experience, isn't it? Uh, the the, the, the yeah. bit in the kitchen. Yes, very much so, and we will be keeping that. I mean, again, we talked about this in the last episode, so if you haven't listened to that, but um, under the the new designs um, with the renovations that are going on, we will be keeping the kitchen there, uh, and. Again, it's it's very nice. You can draw those parallels that you were talking about with going to the pub. Uh, a lot of the implements are quite similar. Spatulas look the same in the 17th century pretty much as they do today. You can see how the two are related. Uh, so I think that's potentially why it's people have that affinity with it because you can you can make those connections. And I suppose this leads us quite nicely into the uh, into today's guest interview. Yes, um, Kate. So, Lindsay, who um, I spoke to um, a couple of days ago uh, about food and the history of food and drink, she is actually uh, an intern with the National Trust for Scotland. She is a PhD student specialising in the history of food, uh, and she is working with us on the renovation projects at Gladstone's Land um, to look at inventories um, so we can make the kitchen as accurate as possible going forward and um, she's been looking at historic recipes for us um, and doing a whole load of research around um, those areas um, so she is a really great person to be able to talk to on this episode Today I have with me Lindsay, I say with me, obviously we're in completely different places as we have been recording this, but she is going to talk to us a little bit about some of the food that is being eaten in the 17th and 18th century. Can I just get you to explain a little bit about what you do, what your PhD's on and how you got into food in the first place? Sure, so I'm Lindsay, I'm in the second year of my PhD at the University of Glasgow and the University of Aberdeen. And I've always just been really interested in food and cooking. I love cooking. It's been a massive hobby of mine. And I did my master's in Victorian literature. So when it came to writing my dissertation, I sort of thought, how can I blend my love of recipes as texts and cookbooks with Victorian literature? And I ended up looking at etiquette guides and drawing comparisons between them and realist Victorian fiction. So that then led me to look more at Victorian cookbooks themselves. So my PhD considers the development of the recipe as a textual genre throughout the 19th century. And I also look at innovations in food technology. So things like gridirons, tin cans. I spend a lot of time researching very obscure cooking techniques. And I do my internship with the National Trust because I thought it would be a great opportunity to look to heritage and explore how I can actually do some fun food things in real life rather than just sitting myself reading books. So let's start by talking about Gladstone's Land a little bit. We've got 
quite upper middle class people living there throughout the 17th and 18th century. What sort of things would they have been eating? And does that change much between the 17th and 18th century? Are there new things that come in during that period or does it stay quite similar throughout? Well, I think Edinburgh and particularly with the location of Gladstone's land is a really interesting case study because you would have been surrounded by markets and food trade coming into Leith. Edinburgh was the main port in Scotland at the time, so about 90% of imports and exports were coming in to Leith. So that meant you would have had your pick of spices like cinnamon and ginger, licorice, nutmeg and mace, fruits, even citrus fruits in the 17th century. And as a wealthy merchant like John Riddick was who lived in Gladstone's land in the 17th century, you would have probably had a really interesting diet for the time. It would have predominantly been meat you were eating, stabilised by bread and grains like oats, particularly in Scotland. But if you were very wealthy, you could probably afford wheat bread at this point. And then you could have spiced things up by literally using all the expensive spices that you were able to buy. So it would have been quite appealing diet I think if you had the money to be able to buy interesting ingredients. And does that change much between the 17th and 18th century? Are there new things that come in during that period or does it stay quite similar throughout? In terms of looking at the cookbooks the recipes are fairly similar. In the 18th century you see even more spices and fruits and things like pickles and they used to call chutney mango because pickled mangoes would be quite a big import. So you have even more stuff coming in from overseas. And because by that point, trade routes were better established, things would be less expensive. So in the 18th century, maybe a few more exotic ingredients, but still similar things and still very much the playthings of the wealthy. And what about something like fish? Is that being eaten or is that reserved for slightly lower down the the social spectrum? Fish particularly in Edinburgh because of the coastal location, would have been very easy to come across. Fishmongers would have come in on market days and sold fish, oysters, shellfish. They were all very cheap, so definitely would have been the mainstays of the working classes. But I think if you were upper class, you would probably be eating fish that was harder to source and had to be caught in rivers, such as salmon, you know, stuff that was a bit more hard to get to this difference is the exclusivity I think. Fascinating and we touched on the working classes there what sort of things are they eating in comparison other than fish? (laughs) Other than fish a lot of what the poor would be eating would have been oats and oat breads, bannocks, oat cakes basically anything that could be made that was would sustain the body for as little cost as possible. So you wouldn't really be eating much meat at all if you were in the working classes at this time. It would be very expensive. You might be able to buy some bacon or even just bacon fat to flavour things. You'd be eating root vegetables like turnips, potatoes, parsnips, and you know some fruit or nuts that you could forage if you lived in a location where those things were available. So you could have apples or berries, depending on the time of year. But it would have been a very stodgy, starchy, carb-based diet that was basically made up by things like peas meal and oats. And of course, everything was very seasonal at this period because people are relying on what's available. Now, in terms of what people are drinking to wash all of that down, I assume, again, there's quite a discrepancy between the working classes and the the middle and upper classes. Everyone, no matter what class you were, would have been drinking a lot of ale. 
the amount of ale that was drunk in Scottish cities was huge at this point. So the demand for it was massive. And in Edinburgh, actually, very interestingly, a lot of the people who brewed ale in the 16th and 17th century would have been women. And these were normally the wives of burgesses who they had sort of family stability behind them. Unmarried women were not encouraged to brew. You had to be out of the reach of scandal. But women would brew in their own homes and then either sell that to people who would sell it in taverns or run taverns from their homes. So everyone would have been drinking ale, whether you were working classes, up to the middle classes, upper classes. Obviously, if you were upper middle classes, you could probably afford wine as well, which would be expensive, but imported. And you could have some brandy. Taverns at the time were shown to sell whiskey. So there were lots of things going round, but ale was the drink that everyone enjoyed. So just jumping on that idea of taverns and ale being served in taverns, are they also serving food as well? Or are people just eating in their own homes? It wouldn't be very common to eat in taverns until the 18th century. By that point, you could get, depending on how much money you had, things that varied from a couple of oysters with your pint or more substantial meals like lamb chops or beef steaks. A lot of the pubs in Edinburgh were well-renowned for selling really good quality fish. So if you wanted fish, you could go and get fish. And this was very much something that men would do. It wouldn't really be as common for women to go and eat in taverns at this point. In the 17th century, I think the taverns were mainly just run in very small scale places that wouldn't probably be set up to do food on a large commercial scale. Again, you would be able to get snacks and things like oysters, biscuits. There were um, biscuits called parleys that they used to be able to buy in taverns that were flavoured with ginger. And were they like a sort of a sweet biscuit? They wouldn't be overly sweet because sugar was expensive, but they were spiced with ginger. So it would be quite a sort of fragrant, nice thing to eat. More sweet than savoury, certainly. A couple of things to pick up on that. Is it true that oyster bars developed into the 18th century? This idea of they were so prevalent in Edinburgh that actually they became somewhere where you you went for a pipe, but oysters were readily available. Oysters were incredibly common during this period and even into the 19th century. You know, they were very much the food of the working classes and you would go and you could buy them from street vendors or in taverns and you could get loads of them for hardly any money and you could snack on them and it would be great. It was only when, I can't remember exactly when it was, I think in the 19th century, someone who was in the upper classes decided that oysters were actually quite a sort of nice snack to have and I think within a a week they had become farmed so much that they were unavailable to the working classes because the wealthy sort of decided that it would be de rigueur to eat oysters. So in a very short space of time, they went for something that was very readily available that you could probably go and harvest yourself if you knew where to look to something that was reserved for the wealthy. I was reading this morning, actually, that there used to be massive oyster beds all around Cramond Island and out into the Forth there, which have obviously gone completely. The other thing I just wanted to ask about, you said women didn't tend to eat in taverns, but actually, is it true that quite a lot of them were running taverns? That is very true. And it would have been a very female occupation. Again, they would typically be wealthy wives or widows sometimes. And 
working class women would sometimes eat and drink in taverns too, but it was still very much a classed thing. And if you were a respectable middle class woman, you wouldn't be going to eat in taverns or drink in taverns. But yes, you're right. A lot of the people who owned and ran taverns were women. And it was one of the primary ways in the 16th and 17th centuries that women could have jobs of their own. I think the other thing I wanted to ask a little bit about is whether there's much difference between what the Scottish are eating and what the English are eating at this time. In terms of the sort of staples to our diet, there is certainly a difference between Scotland and the north of England being very oat-based because that's what we could grow up here, oats and barley, and the south of England would be eating more wheat. So their breads would have been far more refined. If you were working class, they would still not be because wheat was expensive. But oats were the mainstay of Scottish cuisine in the 17th and 18th centuries. And you wouldn't have seen that much in England at all. So if you look at cookbooks, you know, the way that our breads were all made were from either oats or peas meal, whereas in English cookbooks is more of an emphasis on wheat flour. So that's the big difference and obviously that's a geographical difference and dependent on our climate as well. In terms of meat, there weren't massive differences between Scotland and England. There would have been far more chance of eating venison if you were in Scotland because we have far more areas for game shooting at this point. There's lots of mutton eaten in Scotland, but we were still eating beef and pork and even chicken to the same extent as people in England were. So not huge differences if you get past the sort of oats and root vegetable emphasis in Scotland. Just to sort of round out, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. What sort of sources do you use when you're researching this, when you're looking into this? So I tend to try and find cookbooks if I can. It's more difficult in the 17th century because there's not many published cookbooks at all. So I found one, which is great. It's by a lady, so there's no name attributed, but it's called The Accomplished Lady's Rich Closet of Rarities, or The Ingenious Gentlewoman and Servant Maid's Delightful Companion. What a great name. I know, just trips off the tongue. It's got all these great, obviously very upper class recipes for things like saffron syrup or candied ginger, things that relied on spices and sugar and all sorts of quite high moral advice on how best to conduct yourself. So I just found that online. If I'm wanting to get really in depth, I'll go into the National Library of Scotland. They've got an amazing cookbook cookbook collection there, particularly Scottish cookbooks. And actually Olive Geddes, who is a librarian at the National Library, has written a book on layered cookery in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, I think. So that's a really good resource. So that's where I tend to start. And I find if you look to the cookbooks, you can trace the differences between the ingredients and everything that's going on there. And do you have a favourite recipe that you've found during your research? The ones I like are the ones that have really odd names. So there's one for, it's called Cod's Head and Shoulders. And I just love the idea that a fish would have shoulders. <laughs> it's a very common dish actually in Scotland. I know it was common even in like the Western Isles and Outer Hebrides. It was basically just stuffed fish head. But other things, things like hodgepodge, which come up, or fairy butter. <laughs> fairy butter was a sort of sweet, moussey, buttery type thing that you would eat as a dessert. Didn't sound particularly appetizing. 
I have a personal passion for flummery, which is 18th century blancmange. Oh, yes. Elizabeth Raffold, who's not Scottish, but English, and she writes amazing cookbooks. And she has all these awful recipes for like jellied things. There's one that's called a fish pond, which asks you to make molds of fish-shaped molds of aspic and then suspend those in clear aspic to create this illusion. There's another one called a hen's nest that is the same but with egg-shaped blobs of jelly. It's just so awful but so good. Jelly now doesn't really have a taste, whereas at this period it's what mostly coming from animal bones. and Calf's feet or whatever it would be, really sort of strong meat gelatin. And then they, with flummery and blancmange, they would make it sweet by using milk or sugar, but no. Actually, on the subject of Elizabeth Raffold, um, my project for the afternoon, um, I have mentioned it before on the podcast, but I like to make historic recipes. I'm actually making one of hers for beetroot pancake, which I can't decide if it sounds amazing or awful, but it's basically cooked beetroot, egg yolk, cream a little bit of sugar and a little bit of flour and you beat it all up together and then somehow fry it but i will report back on how that goes i mean i've had beetroot in chocolate cakes before where it kind of just disappears and lends moistness but i can't imagine beetroot as one of the primary flavors and i'm I imagine it will be glorious and pink. So yes, let me know how that goes. I guess we'll wrap up there. But thank you so much for talking to us. It's really appreciated. Thank you. No, it was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Well, that that was really fascinating. I really enjoyed listening to that. Uh, I think particularly... um, uh, it was great to hear her talking about the taverns, I think, um, and uh, the experience of eating and drinking out of the house. That wasn't something that I had necessarily thought too much about before. But I suppose... Although, of course, we did have a tavern at Gladstone's Land, and I think mm. we may have mentioned this before, but uh, in the, the basement, we know certainly in the 1630s that there was a, a tavern down there, um, and it was in the, the bit that we call the cellar now, which is sort of at the far end of our basement, not the bit we usually record in. Uh, and that was that was a tavern, um, and people were certainly drinking in there. We don't know very much about it. We know that it was owned by John Riddock, um, who we actually mentioned in the interview, uh, and that it was run by a woman called Isabel Johnston. Um, but beyond that, we don't have a huge amount of information about how long it was there and um, actually how it ran. Um, today, I suppose, I mean, you don't need to go very far at all from Gladstone's Land to find other pubs in the underground bits of the closes around that part of the old town. And I imagine that in the 17th century, it was even more prolific. You know, there, there, there were pubs and taverns and various different kinds of uh, drinking Certainly establishment all... riddled uh, all over the hill. Yep, all down High Street and the Royal Mile, you um, and onto the Cannon Gate, we, we know that there were taverns all around that area. We find mention of them from things like the gentlemen's clubs and the drinking clubs and the, um, and, the and then you find them cropping up in sort of other social history documents as well. So we know that they were all around that area. I suppose that's, again, something in, in history which hasn't really changed. You know, again, we talk I, I, it's in some of the history that we've talked about life is very different today as it was then but 
uh, in the, this this sort of pub culture, and particularly uh, Edinburgh is even today famous for um, for its pubs and uh, all sorts of. Very, well, of course, uh, Glads- Gladstone's Sorry. Land also in the twentieth century. Gladstone's Land also had a pub as well. Uh, we had the uh, the Rabbi Burns Bar that was um, in the front of the building um, in the nineteen up until the nineteen fifties. Um, so we we do have our we we really do tap into that history at various points as well. We've got the the much older tavern and then some of the modern modern pub history as well. I mean, I suppose uh, I, I I doubt it's going to be part of the uh, the renovation project, but it would probably be quite a good uh, uh, part of the uh, of the Gladstone's Land experience if they did have a a recreated uh, pub with real drinks. But uh, oh, it. Wouldn't that be lovely, Thomas? Um, unfortunately, I don't think that is in the plans. But we did discover some really interesting things, um, probably dating from the Rabbi Burns bar when they started the renovation work. Um, and um, they've stripped back some of the walls on the ground floor. Uh, and we found what we think is the hatch for the barrels coming in. Oh, wow. Well, so great. again, we're, we're sort of getting some of those elements coming out through the renovation. And we've been taking photos and documenting those. Um, so bits and pieces of those have been up on Twitter. As we said a moment ago, Edinburgh today, even today, is is famous for its pub culture. And uh, I did actually find a couple of short poems um, by uh, um, a famous Scots poet, Alan Ramsey, who I think was a late 18th century poet. Um, uh, a couple of to demonstrate that Edinburgh was famous at that time also for its pub culture. Uh, so if you'll uh, indulge me, Kate, I'll read, uh, read one of these. <laughs> of course I'll indulge you, Thomas. Alan Ramsey poems. <laughs> now, I'm going to try and do this in uh, in uh, some sort of uh, Scots, but it probably won't be very good listeners, so, uh, so you have to uh, <laughs> uh, don't mind this too much. So Alan Ramsey, this is um, uh, a eulogy for a brewer and tavern owner called Margaret Johnston, who owned a pub in Brunsfield, and he says this. Old Ricky, morn in sable hue, let forth a tears dreep like made you, to braw tippany bid adieu, which we did greed, bended as fast as she brew, but ah, she's deed. Uh, so there you go. That's, um, yes, a eulogy for this, this woman, Margaret Johnson, who, uh, uh, who gave them all such nice beer, but now she's dead. I think you said in the last episode that women were quite involved in the brewing trade in Edinburgh is that right so in the interview um yes Lindsay was talking about that uh, and uh, yeah uh, again it was predominantly respectable women uh, but yes there were a lot of um, female brewers um, in Edinburgh um, and again sort of running taverns and owning um, but also working in taverns um, was quite quite heavily um, female dominated um, there's a um, there is another poem, but I think that my previous uh, attempt was so terrible that I'm not going to I'm not going to read it the second one. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I just one more point about food um, was uh, I think uh, one of my fondest memories of Gladstone's Land was the Georgian Christmas, which oh, yes. we had. It would have been last Christmas, I suppose, Christmas yes. 2018. Um, yes, it was. K- Kate organised this. Uh, a Christmas party 
uh, which was all uh, uh, supposed, all Georgian themed, and that included. So very... I think we talked about it at the time. Actually, I think that was when we were just starting the podcast. We did. Yes, it was. The, I think the very first episode we talked about the Christmas party. Um, but uh, you made a couple of Georgian Christmas dishes. I did, yes. Uh, what did we have? Probably the, well, I was talking about flummery in the interview, so one of them was flummery. Uh, and then I made some um, 18th century gingerbread, which is a lot sort of richer and more treacly than gingerbread today. In terms of actually recipes that I've had, that one is also on my blog, and that is if you want something a little bit richer and a little bit darker, um, also I can recommend um, it works works for modern tastes. Well, it was all very tasty anyway, that's all I, <laughs> all I remember. I mean, what, one of the great things about sort of 18th century cookery books is that um, so many of them are available on Google Books, on Project Gutenberg, on um, various archives that you can just browse them online. So if anybody does, after this, want to uh, take up the gauntlet and try some recipes for themselves, um, there are plenty out there to try um, for free. Well, there's a challenge for you, listeners. And yeah. Yes, anybody... listeners. And if you that... want to try a historic recipe uh, and let us know how it goes, we'd love to hear. Yes, please do. We'd love to get your pictures and any any comments you have on the tastiness or otherwise of these uh, of these recipes. Um, but there you go. This has been a really fascinating uh, d- discussion about the history of food, and I think that we oh and. Before we wrap up, I'm sorry to cut you off, Thomas. Yeah, um, I was talking about beetroot pancakes on the interview and I, I, I thought I would give you all a little update on how those went because they were an unmitigated disaster. Ah. Uh, they were dreadful. <laughs> um, I could not get them to... It was a very, very fi- uh, thin batter um, and I could not get them to... And they burnt very quickly on the outside. Um, so I basically ended up with very brown pancakes, which were still raw in the middle. Mm. Um, and I do not know how to rectify that. So I will report back in the future when I've had to think about it. Did you eat them? I mean, I tried them, but they weren't very tasty. They, um, The beetroot is so strong and earthy. And then there wasn't a lot of sugar in them because obviously sugar was expensive. Uh, so they were just very vegetable-y which is not quite what you're expecting when you eat pancakes they were a beautiful pink color though well there you go so, yeah, but pro- beetroot pancakes not not so much a success not great do not do not recommend <laughs> do, do not try this at home <laughs> um but i think we may come back to 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 food and drink and particularly drink yeah. actually because we were having a discussion just before this and um uh, and it, Lindsay in the interview talked about whiskey, and we'd like to know a little bit more about whiskey. So we might try and do. Uh, uh, we could oh, maybe do a whole, whole episode on whiskey. Really, yeah, we might. It might. Be, uh... We might try and find someone who knows about whiskey and um, and get them on the show. But um, but otherwise, until until that time, um, I've really enjoyed this discussion about food, Kate. So thank you very much. It's been really interesting, hasn't it? It's been good to talk about it as well. Right, and so now we move on to our our next segment, the Women of Scotland. Last week we heard about Muriel Thompson uh, and the Fannies, uh, which was a really fascinating story. I'd never never heard about Muriel Thompson. Um, And uh, today uh, I'm going to be doing this uh, section and I'm talking about Matilda of Scotland. Uh, And this... 
Matilda of Scotland was the daughter of Malcolm III and Saint Margaret. So Saint Margaret is someone that that people have probably heard of. Uh, and she was a an English princess uh, and a member of the exiled royal English royal family who was uh, deposed by uh, by William the Conqueror. So Saint Margaret had then gone to Scotland and married the king, and their daughter. Uh, Matilda went on to marry King Henry I of England. Uh, Henry I was the son of William the Conqueror and uh, so this is a bit like you have um, the a member of the exiled English royal family coming back into the the Norman royal family and uh, and and marrying back into it. So that's sort of that's that's who she is. Um, she's called Matilda of Scotland because she was a Scottish princess. Um, but she, she probably spent most of her time in England as as the as the Queen of England, as as Queen of Henry the First. She's 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 a, one of these really remarkable medieval queens. Someone I, I I'm quite astonished. I hadn't really heard much about her. Um, because lots of people have heard of people like well, we had Saint Margaret. People have heard of Eleanor of Aquitaine and things like that. But I'd never really heard much about. Uh, Matilda of Scotland until I started to to look into her for this but she seems to be absolutely fascinating um, she uh, she was originally called Edith and this is this is one slightly odd thing about medieval queens is they often seem to have had several different names um, because when they married yeah yeah it, very uh, confusing. this is rather confusing um, it's it often seems to be that they were they were given a new name or they adopted a new name when they joined a new family uh so she was originally called Edith which is an old english name because her mother was old english and she gave all of the, their children uh old english names and then when she joined the norman royal family she changed her name to matilda um and this is the really confusing thing because all Medieval, all Norman queens were called Matilda. Okay, William the Conqueror's <laughs> wife was called Matilda. She's Matilda of Flanders. Then their son Henry the First, his wife was Matilda of Scotland. Their daughter was also called Matilda. That's the famous uh, Matilda who fought against King Stephen during the anarchy. But get this, King Stephen's wife was also called Matilda. So, um, so that is another thing that makes it a bit confusing. So, historians sometimes call her Edith Matilda, um, but at the time she also seems to have been known as Maud, uh, because uh, people at the time seem to have called her Good Queen Maud, a bit like Good Queen Bess for Elizabeth I. So, so this we have Edith Matilda, um, or Good Queen Maud. Uh, and she seems to have been one of these really formidable um, medieval queens. You know, I think w when we we think about medieval women, you tend to because they they lived in what was then a very patriarchal society. So you tend not to think of them having much agency or um, not being able to do very much on their own. But queens, for some reason, were were an exception to this because the fact that they were the queen meant that they had a number of different roles that they could play. Um, so, for instance, they were anointed, which means that they had um, 
when they when they became the queen, they had s uh, sacred oil placed on their forehead, and this meant that they were magical, uh, in a sense. Medieval people saw the queen as magical, so they were able to do things that normal women weren't allowed to do at that time. So they they had roles in government. They were allowed to uh, intercede with the king, ask the king for special favors, or or um, intercede with him on the behalf of. Uh, of a particular problem uh, and they had very important roles as diplomats as well. One term that uh, um, that people often use to talk about medieval queens is peace weaver. Have you heard, do you, Kate, have you heard that term peace weaver? No. I think the I idea is that medieval kings were, the main thing they were supposed to do was make war all the time and uh, you know fight each other whereas medieval queens were known as peace weavers because the royal families were all related to each other and so you'd often find queens as being these great matriarchal figures who uh, you know they were related to both sides or you know, all three sides in a particular conflict so they were able to sort things out in a way that the kings were not able to do and uh, Edith Matilda played all of these sorts of roles um, so, for instance, um, we, we talked about her, her in childhood. She was, um, uh, she was, as I said, she was the daughter of Malcolm III and, and St. Margaret. And quite, when she was a little girl, she was sent to England to be educated. She was um, educated at a place called Wilton Abbey, which had been founded uh, by Edward the Confessor's queen. Uh, to educate young women in Latin and the classics and in theology. And so she was actually, for her time, an incredibly well-educated woman. Um, and there's a story mm. about her education, that it was, an, it was a, an abbey, so most of the women there were nuns. And she had apparently been compelled to dress as a nun, but she found this... Uh, uh, particularly um, awful so apparently whenever she could she took off her habit and stamped on it uh, as a as a little as a little girl so you can imagine this very willful princess um, stamping on her nun's habit and um, the fact that she had been in this convent was quite uh, was the cause of a bit of controversy because in uh, in 1100, so when she was about 16, we think, um, William Rufus died and his brother, Henry, became King of England. And he wanted to marry Edith Matilda. Um, the chroniclers suggest that they ha were actually quite deeply in love. Um, William of Malmesbury says he had long been attached to her. So it's possible that they met at court or whatever, and um, and he he took a bit of a fancy mm -hmm. to Edith Matilda, but also she would have been a very important political ally for him because not only was she related to the the Scottish kings, so that would have been an important alliance. She was also a member of the native English royal family, right? So the Normans at this stage were were mm -hmm. interlopers who had seized the throne by. Combat, and I think Henry the First wanted to marry Edith Matilda to to build up his 
English credentials, if you like. So apart from the fact, you know, he was, he had been long attached to her, but she was also quite an attractive political prospect. But the trouble was, everyone thought she was a nun. And uh, she insisted that she wasn't a nun, and she challenged St. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the most famous theologian in Europe, to a public debate on the steps of Westminster Abbey. And age six, age 16, a great lady. she yeah. managed to persuade Anselm that she had not, in fact, become a nun, and so she was free to marry. And it seems, as a sort of side note to this, that after that, she and Anselm became very good friends. And one of the things that she did throughout uh, her time as queen was mediate between King Henry and St. Anselm, who were falling out quite a bit. Um, so, uh, so already, you know, right at the beginning of her time as queen, she had this very impressive episode. And basically, during her... Well, I want to say her reign. I keep wanting to say her reign. Of course, it was really her husband's reign. But during her, her queenship, she played a very important political role. Um, at that time, the, the English king was often in France. And so whenever the king was away, Matilda, the queen, was the regent of England. So he didn't ask one of his male barons to do it. He got his queen to do it. So she governed the country while he was away. Uh, and she was often a very important part of his his government. And in particular, as I said earlier, it seems that she provided this link to the English side of the uh, of the Norman kingdom that that through his queen Henry I was able to really big up his Englishness and his English credentials. And actually, there's a, a sort of sad little story about that, that because of, because of this, Henry and Matilda were given the nicknames of Godric and Godiva by, their, uh, by the Norman courtiers, because it was, at that time, I suppose, everything French was posh and, and very popular, and people thought that the English and Englishness was very tawdry and shabby uh, and very old-fashioned. And the fact that Edith, Matilda and Henry I were trying to be very English was considered to be uh, very down-market. So they were mocked as Godric and Godiva. But, um, but after the fact, you know, regardless of that, she seems to have been quite really successful in that, about combining the Normans and the English together. Um, and one really interesting thing that I found about her was that she was a great patron of the arts. Um, this, this is a fairly standard thing, I think, for, for queens at that time to do, for you know, women. They, they couldn't always get involved in war, but they could get involved in the arts. But Matilda seems to be really interested in that, and particularly in encouraging English uh, and um, vernacular literature as opposed to Latin literature. So, um, for instance, she commissioned The Life of St. Margaret, her mother, which is now our best source for knowing about St. Margaret, so we have her to thank for that. Um, and she also, her most important contribution was commissioning William of Malmesbury to, to write his famous book, the, uh, the Gesta Rex Anglorum, or the History of the Kings of England, which is one of the most important works of English literature at that time. So she was really, uh, you can imagine this, this great, powerful woman um, 
communicating with all the great people in Europe, you know, discussing theology with the with the best and having this really lively court of artists and uh, poets and authors. Apparently she loved to listen to the guitar. So people sat there and played the guitar for her. Um, and, uh, yeah, really one of these... Um, one of these, as I said, great medieval queens who, who play, who was, who had the opportunity to play a much larger role uh, in, in uh, public life than many women at the time. So, um, so there you go, uh, Queen Matilda or Edith or Good Queen Maud. Uh, <sighs> what yes. a what a wonderful woman! She sounds brilliant. Moving on from that, final section, um, which is something we introduced last week, which is what are you reading this week? So, Thomas, what are you well, reading this week? Well, continuing on the uh, sort of World War Two theme or the Nazi theme that I uh, picked up, I, I started last week. I'm I'm currently halfway through a book called After the Reich, which is a history of the Allied occupation of Germany after the Second World War. Um, I should explain that I've spent the best part of the last five years reading increasingly uh, 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 esoteric and specific stuff about medieval church history or um, medieval manuscripts or the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> and um, doesn't surprise I've me. Just, uh, I'm just about to become a, a high school history teacher. And so, so I'm trying to get back into the, the theme of reading a bit more 20th century stuff. And this is a book that sat on my shelf for, for many years, actually. I've never actually read it. So here we are, After the Reich, uh, which is really fascinating, actually. It's talking about how the, the Red Army uh, and then the, the British, French and Americans occupied Germany and the various different approaches they took to dealing with the, the Germans. I think that I've, I've read the first half of it, which and most of that seems to have been about the Red Armies, uh, that that's the, the Soviets or the Russian armies move through Eastern Europe, where until 1945, there were large majority German speaking communities quite far east, you know, in places that are now Poland and Hungary and even Romania. There were places where there had been communities of Germans living for centuries, and these were all basically um, either well either exterminated or 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 forced to move to um, to the current borders of Germany. So it's a bit of a sad story, actually, but extremely interesting and a side of um, of German history and twenty first century history that I've never found out about before. So that's very interesting. And that is um, uh, the author's name. I'll just try and find it here. That's Giles McDonough, uh, After the Reich, The Brutal History of the Allied Occupation. So um, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody because it's quite... Um, uh, it is quite brutal, actually. But if this is... Um, if that's a period that you're interested in, you'd like... Um, World War II or German history, then I would recommend it because it gives you a different side of the story, I think. We're so used to thinking of the Germans as the, the bad guys in this particular context, and therefore you generally think of the Allies as the good guys. And while that was probably the... You could argue that that was definitely the case 
um, in the grand scheme of things in World War Two. It's very interesting to see this this other side of that story. So there you go. That's my contribution after the Reich. Kate, what are you reading this week? Uh, I am always also part way through something. It's quite quite appropriate for today. It is called How to Cook a Wolf by M.F.K. Fisher. Um, and she was uh, an American author and she wrote this during the Second World War. Uh, and it is, it's a, such a weird combination. It's a series of sort of um, essays and thoughts um, interspersed with recipes, uh, which originally were all things you could cook um, during rationing. And then it was updated in the 50s to have some slightly more decadent things, which have eggs and cream in them. Uh, but it is, it's really comforting at the moment because she writes really nicely. It's quite lyrical in places. It's nicely written. Um, it's full of no-nonsense advice. And then it's got some, instead of a lot of ration cookbooks I've read, you look at the recipes and you think, goodness, that sounds disgusting. Whereas actually her recipes, all of them are quite enticing. Um, and I will be trying one. There's one for sort of a clam chowder. I just need to find tinned clams. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's it's really, and it's not too hard to read because it's all little short essays. Um, and uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a very good book for the time at the moment. Why do you say that? Because you... It, it just feels so comforting because I, f I find food comforting and I think a lot of people do. Um, and when you couple that with her, like, I think I've certainly people I've spoken to, I think people are finding to really it difficult to really settle down and read something chunky. Whereas this is just lots of little short essays um, and it's all... It, it's quite no nonsense her tone it's quite come on let's get on with it i know it's difficult because it, it's written in wartime but it also feels yes, quite I relevant you were going right to now say something about a, a comparison between the uh, the the 1940s wartime experience and the 2020 wartime experience I mean, yes and no. Obviously, it's very different, but it is the the tone she takes is is very understanding, but very sort of like, come on, um, and it's it's quite it's quite soothing at the well, moment. There you go. I, they, in, as as with last week, um, uh, not entirely dissimilar books, uh, but uh, no, obviously two um, two quite quite yeah two quite different uh, <laughs> recommendations. But um, both both sound really fascinating, actually. Uh, and in, in, in keeping mm -hmm. with our history of food theme for this podcast episode. So thank you for that, Kate. Absolutely. And this was a oh. present from one of my friends for my birthday. And I've just got round to it now. So it's uh, it's it's clearly it's probably not something I would have bought myself. What but was it was such a good name? choice. So impressed with that. Uh, MFK Fisher. We will be posting about both of those in the comments of this uh, uh, this episode. So if you're interested in either of those books, mm -hmm. then have a look uh, in the in the comments. So um, that's really all we've got time for this week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the history of food and. I hope you're all doing okay out there. And and, uh, and yes, and I hope this has been a uh, part of your. Uh, a part of, a, of listeners, maybe of you, not uh, thinking exclusively about the uh, the situation, but but you know, listening <laughs> to some some good, yeah, something a, something bit a little so bit different. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks very much, everybody. Um, I'm Thomas.
And I'm Kate, and we will see you again in a couple of weeks. You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Kate Stevenson, and my co-host, Thomas Ware. It was produced by us with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Lindsay Middleton. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones land. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.